the Lord Jesus um, came to die. He was prepared for it. He saw it coming. Uh, Nothing took him by surprise. It would have taken his followers by surprise, and because he loved them and had great expectations for them, he took time to prepare them for his soon departure. And he, he prayed for them, in fact, to the Father. And they heard him do that, and it must have really blessed them richly. And he had a short time to say final words to them, and, and now those words are coming to an end. And we read about it now in John chapter 18, verse 1. His teaching time has ended. Uh, uh, the cross is pretty close now. And uh, having finished his words, most of them, to his most intimate followers, his disciples, this is what happens next. It's in John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. They had been in the famous upper room. It was the site of the Last Supper. It was Passover time. They met together to celebrate the traditional Passover to which the Lord attached marvelous new meanings. And now they're leaving the upper room and with his disciples they're walking in an eastward direction. And they're going to cross a major valley which runs north and south and is located between the Temple Mount on the west site of the temple when it stood there and the Mount of Olives on the east. It was then called the Kidron Valley and is called by that name even today. There's a picture of what it looks like. Today, it's the Kidron Valley. And the Lord was leading his disciples across it to make their way to the Mount of Olives. In fact, here's a photo of the Mount of Olives as it appears today. The church in the foreground. Folks, I'm going to try that. Look at that. It works. We weren't sure. So um, this is called the Church of All Nations right here. This is a Russian Orthodox church. You may be surprised to know that in the Jewish homeland, there are churches of every particular kind, and even mosques, and even Baptist churches. It is a true democracy where there is religious freedom. I emphasize that because you won't hear that on the news. The news paints an entirely different picture, but when you go there, you'll see Uh, the reality is different than the portrayal of Israel on the news. Anyway, the Lord was making his way to a particular place on the Mount of Olives. John simply refers to it here as a garden, but we know it to be specifically the Garden of Gethsemane. We don't know this by speculation. We know it by revelation. You see, the other gospel writers, there's four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
So the other three specify the name of the garden. It's when you take all the Gospels, you get a full-orbed picture of this account and others. So having consulted the other Gospel writers, I can tell you with certainty the name of the garden is the Garden of Gethsemane. It's Gethsemane. And here I'd like to show you a picture of tourists making their way. Here's what they're doing. They're making their way from the top of the Mount of Olives and they're going down to the location of the Garden of Gethsemane. Across, you see that golden domed building? To get to it, you cross the Kidron Valley. That's the third holiest site in Islam. Islamic people, the Quran, teach that Muhammad was resurrected from the side of that golden domed building, they say on a horse, he was resurrected. Yet we have absolutely not one bit of evidence that Muhammad was even ever in Jerusalem. But anyway, that's the teaching in Islam. So these tourists are making their way down that hill. It's kind of slick. Uh, it's called the Palm Sunday Road because it's the very path the Lord would have traveled to enter into the eastern or golden gate on Palm Sunday, humble and mounted on a colt, the foal of a donkey, we read in Scripture. Every time I look at this picture, I think of an incident which is funny now, but wasn't at the time. I was walking down this hill with some folks, including my wife. She was hanging on to me, and all of a sudden she slipped and went down. And I said to her, what'd you do that for? And I just want to tell you that's probably not the best response. Yeah, I paid dearly for, uh, for that one. So I just want you to let you know if you're with someone close to you and they fall, that's not a good response. There was like a hundred others that would have been better, but I chose the wrong one as we walked down to the Garden of Gethsemane. What I'd like to show you is a little bit of a map to give you an idea of the specific steps taken by the Lord at this time. It's called Passion Week or Holy Week in his life from the Latin term passio, which means suffering, the week of suffering. So they were in the upper room, which it would have been in this part of Jerusalem, somewhere around here. This is the old city of Jerusalem. There are gates and walls around it. The Temple of Solomon and then the second temple would have stood right here. It's the one in which the Lord entered during his time, Herod's temple. And so the Lord would have gone from the upper room, see, eastward, and they would have crossed this Kidron Valley, which runs, as I mentioned, north-south between the Temple Mount and this, the Mount of Olives. And the Lord was making his way to this particular place, the Garden of Gethsemane, located on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. On the other side of the Mount of Olives is a place well known to the Lord, Bethany, or in Hebrew, Beit Ani, the house of the poor. He spent a lot of time there, the Lord did, because there was a family with whom he had a special relationship. You remember them, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. So there's the location of the Garden of Gethsemane. In Hebrew, Gat Shmanim. I share that with you because I want to impress you. No. Uh, Gat Shmanim means the garden of the oil 
press. That's what it means. Because in this location, olives were put into a press so that the oil could be extracted. Because in those days, on the Mount of Olives, it was covered by olive trees. Still, there are olive trees there today, but not nearly as many. I'll tell you why. In uh, A.D. 70, the 10th Roman Legion assaulted the residents of Jerusalem. They cut down a lot of the olive trees, and they used it to burn the city of Jerusalem to destroy the temple and so on and so forth. But this term, Gatshmanim, or the, uh, the garden of the oil press, is kind of a metaphor, it seems to me, for the extent of the sufferings the Lord will go through as he enters there. He will be pressed upon by all manner of horrific events as the cross is drawing nigh. And here is what the Garden of Gethsemane looks like today. There it is. Can you see those trees? They did not exist in the time of the Lord. Sometimes when you go there, uh, tour guides are a little overzealous in making it meaningful, and they will say that. What is true is that some of these trees in seedling form probably did exist in the time of the Lord. But these are not quite that old. That would be 2,000 years ago. The Lord often made recourse to this garden where he went for prayer. In fact, he seemed to be at home in it to seek the solitude of time with the Father. And so uh, it was a private garden then probably owned by a wealthy uh, person. I'll tell you why. Uh, Jerusalem, the city, was cramped and crowded as it is today. There really wasn't room for much private gardens in the city proper. Not only that, in Jewish tradition, uh, it would be a kind of a ceremonial defilement and source of corruption to use manure on the soil of the holy city of Jerusalem. As a result, most of the gardens were planted on acreage on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. But as you might imagine, because land was scarce, it was quite expensive. Therefore, a poor or even average person couldn't afford to have a private garden there. So how did the Lord gain access to one? We know he had little of what the world offers materially, and therefore he was not a wealthy man. We could surmise the, the garden and access to it was probably given to the Lord by an anonymous, wealthy devotee of Rabbi, Rabbi Jesus. They probably gave him the key to unlock the gate into this private garden where when he was in Jerusalem, he could go to a place of solitude and commune privately with the Lord. Interestingly, when we go to this garden today, it remains a private garden with restricted Access. It is owned today by the Catholic Church. Isn't that interesting? And for us to gain access, there's a public garden on the Mount of Olives, but I like to bring people into a more private place so we could commune for a few moments alone with the Lord and away from the crowds. But in order to gain access to that private gated garden, I'm not making this up, we have to send a letter of application to the Vatican. 
several months in advance of our visit to Israel, awaiting approval from the Vatican to allow us to gain entrance into this private garden. It's a document, it's quite interesting, with a Vatican seal on it, and we must show it to the priest there, the keeper of the keys, in order for him to unlock the gate and allow us to have access to it. Once again, uh, that's the Jewish homeland, and yet a good deal of it is in the hands of uh, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, freedom of religion. Now, I'm restraining myself tonight. I'm not going to throw down any microphones or do anything crazy. Um, I've done it already, and enough is enough. Uh, These microphones are too costly, so I'm not going to do it. But uh, it's upsetting to me that the reports of the only true democracy in the Middle East are so distorted, people even boycott Israel, uh, accusing it of being an apartheid state. I would like you to show me any one Muslim-dominated country that allows freedom of religion to the extent that Israel does. Show me one. There ain't none. Only Israel. So anyway, we go to this place to pray in the very area in which the Lord sought solace and private communion with his father. Now, I know this, and now you know this, but even more significantly, Judas knew this. He knew the Lord made frequent recourse to this particular private garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and therefore, we read what we do now in verse 2. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place. Because Jesus had often met there with his disciples, you see. Now the other gospel writers tell us that Judas betrayed the Lord with a... How did Judas betray him? Do you remember? With a kiss. John uh, has omitted that incident. But the other gospel writers tell us that's the means by which Judas betrayed the Lord. In fact... It's depicted in a rather famous fresco, you're looking at it now, painted by the Italian artist Giotto in 1304 and called The Kiss of Judas. A kiss is a sign of affection, and yet there was nothing affectionate about that kiss. It was filled with treachery and betrayal behind it. I tell you, long before the excruciating Pain endured by the Lord on the cross. He experienced all kinds of pain, not the least of which is betrayal by one of his closest associates. So verse 3, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Folks, a cohort is a tenth of a Roman legion. A legion would consist of 6,000 fighting men. A tenth, therefore, is 600 men. In addition to hundreds of seasoned Roman tough soldiers, the text tells us also there were officers of the chief priests and Pharisees. 
those were Jews, kind of a private police force who would protect the Jewish religious establishment and the temple precinct. So you add to the 600, I don't know how many other Jewish police officers, and here they go to find this Jesus the Nazarene on the Mount of Olives somewhere. It was a large contingent, if you think about the makeup, of both Jewish religious people and Gentile governmental people. They were representatives of religion, and they were representatives of government, and they all came together. Interesting. They have nothing in common except a contempt for Jesus, and that unified them. So they all came together to find and arrest this Jesus from Nazareth. Now, folks, it was Passover time. And we know Passover falls in the Hebrew month of Nisan, which roughly corresponds to our March and April. During that time, it's a time in Jerusalem of a full moon. When the moon is full, it's like day, though it be night. And yet we're reading, they came to seek out Jesus, notice, with lanterns, torches, and weapons. And you wonder why. They could see perfectly clearly without lanterns and torches. I suppose they imagined this Jesus was going to run from them. And because the Mount of Olives was filled with so many olive trees, I suppose they thought maybe he will craftily find his way to hide somewhere in one of the groves of trees on the Mount of Olives. And so they needed all this stuff to search him out. But they were wrong about all that. They didn't have to search him out at all. Look what it says in verse 4. So Jesus, knowing all things, you can't surprise him, folks. Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth. He didn't run away. (laughs) He didn't hide. He, knowing all things that these hundreds of Jews and Romans are coming to get him, he went forth. And he said to them, whom do you seek? He went forth, not back. He came right up to them. He went forward. When they came to take him to the cross, he came forward to participate in it because that's the reason why he came. He was born to die for ones like you and I. He was not taken by surprise. He was not a victim. He was a willing sacrifice. Folks, Jesus is far more willing to die to save us than we are willing to be saved. Isn't that true? We resist the gracious offer of salvation, and that's quite a mystery, isn't it? But we do. Now, all that was happening was happening according to God's plan. It was his plan for his son to be taken to the cross and to die for our sins. Now, folks, during the Passover time, uh, hundreds, thousands of lambs had their blood shed on the altar of sacrifice on top of a hill at the temple in order to provide covering for sin. In fact, we know that a census was taken sometime after this event we're reading about in which the number of sacrificed lambs was 200 and 56,000, 
Now, I want you to think about this, the smells, the noise, uh, all of it. It was a horrific scene. A sin is not pretty, and atoning for it costs a lot. And so the priests took turns slitting the throats of these 200, almost a quarter, over a quarter million lambs, sacrificed lambs. And what would happen then is that their blood would flow into a channel and from the Temple Mount and down into the Kidron Valley below. And it would form a river of flowing blood. Now the Lord Jesus and his eleven cross that very river. And as they crossed it, I think the Lord could even see his reflection, his own reflection in the blood. And I can imagine him thinking, all the blood of all these Passover lambs cannot do for a sinner what I, the true Passover lamb, am willing to do. Once Jesus suffered and died, folks, we need no more. Any sacrifice for sin, Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin left a crimson stain. How does it go, the rest of it? He washed it white as snow. So this is kind of happening. Folks, he was not taken by surprise in the garden by Judas's betrayal, nor by the Jewish temple police, nor by the Roman soldiers. He came for this purpose. He came to die for our sin. And so in verse 5, they answered to him. He said, whom do you seek? They answer him, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. Terrible. Betrayed. Betrayed by one of his own. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. What a waste of spiritual privilege. Instead of standing with the Lord, he's standing with those who are about to crucify the Lord. A terrible end to this one's life who had so much potential. And the Lord replied to them, I am he. Well, he didn't actually say those three words. You know what he said? I am. He is a word added by your translators. Some of your Bibles will have the word he in italics. That means it's not found in the original. It is supplied legitimately by the translators because that is the sense. Now, I prefer a Bible translation that leaves it alone. Don't supply a thing for me. Leave it the way it is. The way it is is this. Jesus said, I am. Do you know why that is significant? In so doing, he is declaring himself to be God because he's referring back to Exodus when God was sending Moses to speak to Pharaoh. Moses was timid and reluctant. Who shall I say sent me, Moses said. And the answer from the God who spoke from the burning bush is, tell him I am sent you. 
I am is the word Yahweh, which is a verb of being. Who is God? He is a timeless deity. He has no beginning, middle, or end. He just are. Yahweh, I am. Jesus, in saying what he did, is essentially saying, I am the great I am. And so we read this in verse 6. As soon as Jesus said, I am, look what happened. They, the cohort of Romans and Jewish police, stepped back and fell to the ground. Tough people. They fell down before one unarmed Jewish rabbi, Jesus. Folks, this was a demonstration of his divine power. At a time when he appeared to be at his weakest and most vulnerable, in two words, he could get a whole army of Romans to fall backwards and absolutely lose control. And when he proclaimed those two words, that's what happened. They fell back. In fact, here's an artist's depiction of the scene. It was painted by James Tissot, Around 1896, it's called the guards falling backwards. What a help this miracle would have been to the Lord's, I'm sure, terrified and confused disciples. They wondered about their Messiah. They imagined him to be their king, but he doesn't look very kingly now. He looks put upon instead of one fit for the throne. And then in two words, an entire army falls backwards at his feet. And I think they are blessed in saying, whoa, he is the great I am. He's no victim. He's in complete control. And so their swords, the Roman swords, are not what brought Jesus to the cross. It's his heart for the Father, and it's his heart for you and I that brought Jesus to the cross. Nobody obligated him to be impaled upon it. He chose to do so to save ones like you and I. Therefore, verse 7, he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said again, Jesus the Nazarene. Why did he ask them? uh, Why did they... Um, ask him this again. I think the Lord is giving them a chance to repent. After the miracle, you would have thought they would have changed their whole attitude towards this Jesus, but apparently, in spite of the miracle, they remained hardened. And so, Jesus answers in verse 8, I told you, I am he. So, if you seek me, let these others go. That's what he said. Let these others go. Listen, folks. What a miracle his disciples beheld when at his word the tough Roman soldiers fell backward. But I think long after they, if it's possible, forget that miracle, uh, they would remember these words. Listen, he, to their mind, is in desperate straits, but they're on his heart. He's concerned about their well-being. If you came to seek Jesus, the Nazarene, It is I, let these go. Why did he do that? Well, the disciples at this point were not fit for persecution, imprisonment, and martyrdom. They'll get there, but not yet. The Holy Spirit of Jesus had not yet come to indwell them. 
That took place on the day yet to come. Pentecost. And they will be empowered to be his disciples and evangelists. And to go all over just like these hellfighters and others. To go empowered by the Holy Spirit. But he's very sensitive to their growth. They're not ready for this yet. And so he beseeches the Roman authorities to let these go. Why? Verse 9. To fulfill the word which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Those are the words that make up part of the Lord's farewell prayer. We read about it in John chapter 17. He prayed to the Father. Father, take care of them just as I did in fact Not a one whom you've entrusted to me did I ever lose sight of. He's referring back to John chapter 17, verse 12. Here's what it says. While I was with them, he's praying to the Father, but they're hearing. I was keeping them in your name which you've given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that's Judas, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And so you see, Right towards the end, the Lord Jesus is orchestrating everything, fulfilling everything, just as it has been ordained. So verse 10, look what happens. Simon Peter, then, having a sword, now I don't want to get off on a tangent, but the disciples were not pacifists. I know some people claim that today. You have a right to be one, but you can't blame it on this text. Uh, The disciples carried swords with them. They were not permitted to use their swords to obligate people to um, embrace the gospel. But they were permitted to do this to defend themselves and others. So Peter had a sword. They carried them. And he drew it. And he struck the high priest's slave. And he cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. Now here's another artist's depiction of the event. It's called, as you might not be surprised, the Ear of Malchus. Again, it was done by James Tissot in the 1800s. I gather Peter is missing the point. Well, he missed more than the point. I think he was trying to lop off the head of Malchus. Malchus probably ducked and all Peter got was his right ear. You don't go after a guy's right ear. That's kind of what happened. But Peter missed more than the guy's neck. He missed the whole point of what was going on. He was trying to save the Lord's life. (laughs) But the Lord came to give up his life to save Peter. Can you see the difference here? The Lord was committed to voluntarily giving up his life so that sinful people just like Peter and us might live forever forgiven. So Peter missed the point here. And Luke tells us that uh, the Lord did something remarkable next. John doesn't tell us this, but Luke does. He tells us the Lord healed Malchus's ear. And that, folks, is the last recorded miracle of the Lord Jesus before he's impaled on a cross. Isn't it interesting? That he healed the ear of one of his enemies. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. That's what he did. What an act of grace for Malchus. But it was an act of grace for Peter as well. Because if the Lord didn't put Malchus together, Peter undoubtedly would have been arrested and executed, you see. So that's what happened. 
And then it says in verse 11, this will be our final verse for tonight. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? The cup the Lord is referring to represented suffering, and it represented the separation he would experience from the Father, from whom he had never ever been separated from eternity past. You see, it's only sin that affects the separation with a holy God, And the Lord Jesus had none of his own. He's sinless. So you realize in the cup was our sin that the Lord would drink as a substitute for us. And in so doing, he would provide atonement. And he would propitiate or appease the wrath of a holy father instead of it being poured out on deserving ones like us. Uh, The Lord drank the cup of God's wrath for us. Why? So that we could be left to drink not from that cup, but from the cup of salvation. Have you? Have you? Which cup have you drank from, one or the other? If you have not drank from the cup of salvation... That's a means of forgiveness provided to us through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have not drank from the cup of salvation, you will drink from the latter cup. That is the cup of the wrath of God. Listen to me. You and I get lathered up by injustice done to us. How much more a holy God. Oh, yes. Our sin invokes the wrath of a holy God. Here's the choice. My son, said he, go and drink the cup of wrath for them. And if they accept the fact that you did, there's only one cup left for them to drink, the cup of salvation. Listen. First, Adam was in a garden and he was thrust out of it because of disobedience. Second Adam, and that's how the New Testament refers to Jesus in various places. Second Adam went into a garden because of obedience. Who do you remain connected to? First Adam or second Adam? First Adam brought sin upon you and I. We inherited his sin. And we have no access to any Eden-like garden again. Ours is the cup of wrath. But second Adam, through obedience, gave us access to a garden of an entirely different kind. Paradise restored, contingent on the cup we drink from. I beg you, take Jesus at his word. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary. Tired of life, tired of pain, tired of sin, tired of meaninglessness? Come to me, he says, all who are weary and heavy laden. Now give you rest. Drink the cup of peace. Drink the cup of reconciliation. Drink the cup of forgiveness through Jesus' blood. Free for you, costly to him. Would you let his sacrifice go in vain? 
Judas did. Lost potential. Peter did not. Both have sin in common. Both were sorry over it. One accepted God's forgiveness. And the other ended up hanging himself over unresolved guilt and shame. Do you carry it? It'll drive you to death. Eternal separation from a holy God. Or like Peter, you can confess your sin, being broken of it, sorry for it. And you could say, Lord Jesus, I choose to drink the cup of salvation. I choose to accept the fact that you suffered and died on a horrific cross in my place and then rose up from it so that you, upon my invitation, can come and take up your abode in my life, forgive my sin, and change me just the way you changed Peter. Peter became one of the most marvelous and fruitful followers of Jesus the world has ever known. You think you got rough edges? Good night. Nothing like Peter. And if the Lord Jesus can make him new, he can make you and me new as well. Drink from the cup of salvation if you haven't yet. Take a sip. Savor its taste. Thank the Lord Jesus that the scarlet nature of his sin covers the redness of your sin. The scarlet nature of his blood covers the Redness of your sin. Leave this place forgiven once and forever. Sin cast behind his back. Jesus came to die for one such as you and I. Would you let him die in vain? Don't do it. Lord Jesus, we pray to you that in a way only you can, you would impress yourself upon anyone here tonight or even watching who has been sipping from the wrong cup. I pray, oh God, by your grace, that one or more would be moved to sip from the cup of mercy and grace and forgiveness and adoption and reconciliation. It's a cup provided for us in your blood. Oh God in heaven, what miracles you performed, even in this text. Would you perform the greatest miracle that is of salvation. Would you save those in need of it even tonight? And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.